I'll be reading Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 24. This is what Holy Scripture says. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, friends, I want to invite you to uh, take your Bible again and open up to Ephesians 4. Uh, for many of you here, you know that I've been working my way through 2 Thessalonians, so you might be wondering why we're in Ephesians uh, this morning. Uh, it just so happened that I wasn't actually scheduled to preach, but we had a last-minute change. And uh, so I'm going to a text that I'm a little more familiar with because I'm not really that prepared to preach through 2 Thessalonians. Uh, But we will get there in September. But today we're going to be looking at uh, Ephesians chapter 4. This is the text that I I chose kind of last minute. And I believe that it fits really well with uh, the theme of our service and how it was planned about pursuing righteousness. So let me pray and then we'll jump into Ephesians 4. Father, we had our plans in place, but in your sovereign wisdom and goodness, uh, you turned things around. And Lord, we thank you for that, uh, because your ways are so much greater than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And Father, we trust that you have a word for us to hear this morning. So give us ears to hear, and grant me grace, O Lord, to preach with clarity to preach with conviction, to preach with faithfulness that which is written in your sacred word. Lord, speak to us and change us so that we would become more and more like Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. There's an old story about a king who was once separated from his wife and son for many years because he was engaged in a devastating war. The father, the king, was fighting in this fierce battle, and the mother had to take their little baby boy and flee far away in order to survive. Just so happened that the the war lasted for many years, and instead of the son growing up as a prince in the palace, he grew up as a peasant in a small rural town living in poverty. His true identity was kept a secret, even from himself, because they, the, the mother didn't want any unwanted attention being brought on him and finding themselves in potential danger because he was the son of the king. And due to the difficulties of life, the boy grew up getting into a lot of trouble, 
He didn't have his father around. He was living in a very poor environment. He would often steal from his neighbors. He would get into fights with other kids. He was rebellious and mischievous, and this happened for a long period of time. Now, by the time this little boy became a young adult, the war had finally come to an end, and his mother told him about his true identity and how he wasn't a lowly peasant. As a matter of fact, he was royalty. He was the son of the king. And as you can imagine, this came as a complete surprise to him. And upon knowing this truth, the son went to the kingdom looking for his father. And the king who thought he had lost his family was finally reunited to his son, the heir to his throne, the one who was born to be a prince. The boy who thought he had no father growing up finally found his true identity having met his father, the king, and in that very moment, everything changed. He was the son of the king. He was a prince, and nothing in the world was ever going to change that again. And at once, in the king's excitement, he had his servants do all that they could to take care of his son. They dressed him in the finest royal robes. They slept him in one of the best bedchambers. All the richest foods were placed in front of him. He was exposed to the kind of lifestyle that made sense for a prince to live. But it was said that people would often find the prince wearing not his royal robes, but his old ragged clothes. He would be working in the fields, and he'd be sleeping amongst the other servants on the ground because that's just what he was used to. That's how he grew up. He became accustomed to that kind of lifestyle, so much so that he couldn't get used to the palace lifestyle. Just because he became a prince didn't mean he automatically knew how to live as a prince. What he needed to do was simply learn to be who he was, a prince. In the letter to the Ephesians, Paul begins in chapter 1 by reminding the Christians of their true identity in Jesus Christ. In, in chapter 1, if you know that marvelous chapter, Paul talks about how God has chosen them before the foundation of the world and how God in His love predestined them to be adopted into His family. This was true of the saints in Ephesus, and this is true of every single Christian. If God has regenerated your heart and caused you to be born again, if he has saved you and redeemed you by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ, then you are no longer a slave to sin, but you are a child of the living God. That is your true Christian identity. That is central to who you are. And because this is God's doing, there is nothing and no power in the world that will ever change your status before God. Brothers and sisters, you are sons and daughters of the living God. You are precious in His sight. You are deeply loved, cherished, and cared for. But here's the problem that we all face. Just like the prince who constantly fell back to his old habits and old ways, we too as believers have this awful tendency of falling back to our old ways of life, how we lived our life in our pre-Christian days. And where we are in Ephesians 4 this morning is a part of Paul's letter where he exhorts the Christians, chosen, loved, and adopted into God's family, to simply become what you are. Become what you are. 
That's a little famous uh, uh, phrase that was coined by, I believe, Martin Lloyd-Jones, talking about this is who you are, and the Christian life is simply a journey of becoming that which is true of you, where your actions actually match your identity. You are children of God, called to a life of holiness and righteousness, and what you need to do is become that which you are. You are sons and daughters of the holy God. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation and a people for his own possession. And that being true, there is a certain character and conduct of life that matches your God-given identity. It is not appropriate for a prince to live as if he's still a peasant. And in the same way, it is not appropriate for a child of God to live like he or she is an unbeliever. And that brings us to our point number one. We need to quit living like an unbeliever. Look with me now at our our text, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Paul begins by writing now, this I say and testify in the Lord. When when Paul uses that little phrase in the Lord, which he does often, it means that what he is about to say is by the authority of Jesus Christ. In other words, listen up, pay attention, because what you're about to hear is a message from the King of Kings. He goes on and he says, now, I say that, now, I, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. No longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now, you, you know this, the, the word walk there isn't literally talking about the way you walk down the street. It's not like the Gentiles had a certain unique stride and strut in the way they walked down their street. No, when, when, when the Bible uses the word walk, it's, it's talking about the way we live our life. It's our lifestyle and our actions. In other words, our way of life must not be like that of the unbelieving world. That's what he means when he says Gentiles. In this context, it's strictly referring to unbelievers, the pagan non-Christians and Romans who were living amongst the Ephesian Christians. I mean, we need to realize that Ephesus wasn't a Christian city. Just like here in Toronto, the believers in Ephesus were living in a place where they were surrounded by unbelievers, and within that kind of environment, Paul is saying to them, you need to be different. You need to be different from the people that are around you who are not following Christ. Your manner of life shouldn't look the same as the non-believers around you. Earlier in the book of Ephesians, after the apostle wrote about salvation being given as a gift by God alone, he, he says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And what that means is that it has always been a part of God's plan that He would save a people from dead works and call them to a life of good works, to actually walk in these good works, to live doing good works. So I'm just going to be real frank with you right now. If you claim to be a Christian, but there is really no difference in how you live your life from that of an unbeliever, and and you think that's okay because you're presuming on grace, then you need to seriously ask yourself the question, am I really saved? 
maybe ask yourself some of these questions. If you had a new hire come into your workplace, would they be able to see that you're different from some of your non-Christian colleagues? If you had a new student show up to your school, would they be able to see that you're different from the rest of your unbelieving classmates? Have you ever been made fun of by some of your friends and made them feel a little bit uncomfortable because you live your life with a different set of values and standards? Or do you do just what everyone else does around you? Do you walk the way the world walks? Do you talk the way the world talks? Do you laugh at the same crude jokes? Do you engage in the same gossip? Do you do the same sinful things as all of your unbelieving friends? Brothers and sisters, Jesus saved us to be different from this unbelieving world, which is the very reason why we need to be done with our old unbelieving ways. Now, now don't let this overwhelm you because this isn't a call to perfection. We know that sin doesn't just disappear overnight. That day will only come when the Lord brings us to glory. But even if we're not who we ought to be, even if we're not all that we should be, can you truly say by the grace of God you're not the person that you used to be? Can you say that you're not walking the same way that you used to walk or talking the same way that you used to talk? Can you say that the things that once excited you in this world are becoming increasingly more repulsive to you? Really, the big question is, are you becoming more like Jesus Christ? Because that's what it ultimately boils down to. Are you becoming more like Jesus Christ? Because if you're becoming more like Christ, then the other side of that is you are going to become increasingly different from the world. Now, we have to realize here that Paul's not merely seeking to fix our external behavior. He's not just concerned about what what we look like on the outside. He, He is far more concerned about what we look like on the inside. And I want you to look again at verses 17 to 18. I'm going to read through the text, and and you'll see that Paul places the emphasis on the brokenness of the inner man, okay, the brokenness of the inner man. Just listen to the words that he's using. Verse 17, the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart, mind, understanding, heart. You see, the foundational problem with the unbeliever isn't on the outside, but rather it's on the inside. They are broken on the inside. Their way of thinking is spiritually dead. It's futile. Their ability to to comprehend is clouded. It's darkened. They are separated from the life-giving power of God because of the ignorance that is in them that is produced by the hardness of heart. Futile in their thinking, darken in their understanding, harden in their heart. Harden in their heart. Now, that little phrase there might sound very familiar to you if you've read through the Old Testament, especially when we go to a book like Exodus. One of the recurring words that come up again and again is hardness of heart. And it was what was often said of the state of Pharaoh's own heart when he refused to obey God's explicit commandments and let the people of Israel go. You see, in essence, the heart of Pharaoh resides in all of those who do not believe in God. 
And this hardness of heart results in a darkened mind, and because of that, it is a life that is separated from God. When the inner man is broken, it produces a kind of impure lifestyle with an insatiable desire for all kinds of sin. That's where Paul goes next in verse 19. When the inside is broken, it shows on the outside. And because the inner man is broken of the unbeliever, look what happens in verse 19. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That's the result. The more someone hardens their heart to God, the more they become desensitized And they don't start to feel the shame and guilt that ought to be there because of their sin. They actually start to believe that their sin is okay. And they become greedy and they become um, pursuing of all kinds of impure actions and a life of sensuality. That's what a hard heart does. It makes you callous to shame and it makes you greedy to sin. Nate Larkin is a Christian author who wrote the book, Samson and the Pirate Monks. It's a fantastic title that tells you nothing about the book. (laughs) Uh, But many of you who've been around here for years will probably remember that title and also remember our man-to-man ministry that was built out of that book. In, In this book, Nate talks about his own experience of how he descended into a horrible and terrible life of immorality and promiscuity. It started, as he he testified, it started early on in his life by watching just some inappropriate stuff online. But the thing is, he never repented, and he never dealt with the sin. He engaged in this act of immorality on a regular basis, and over time, what started to happen was he became bored of just watching stuff. He became so bored that he wanted a new fix, He wanted something that was going to stimulate him and excite him even more, and so he started to frequent shops around town, the ones that you don't want to be a part of. And he did that for a little while, but guess what happened? He didn't repent. He didn't confess his sins. He didn't bring it into the light. And so the more and more he started to do this, the more and more it became familiar, and he got bored. And it eventually led to several long years of paying and visiting prostitutes for his own gratification Now, what you need to understand about Nate's story is that he did all of this while he was still married with kids. And not only that, but he was a full-time pastor in a church. Needless to say, when everything came to the light, this broke his marriage, his his, his family life, his ability to work. Basically, his whole world was falling apart. He was experiencing all of the consequences, but he couldn't stop. He hardened his heart to the call of repentance. He just stopped caring about the consequences, and he spiraled into a life of heinous sin. Now, that's a bit of an extreme example. That doesn't happen to every single unbeliever, but that is a picture of the kind of impure lifestyle of those who harden their hearts to God and willfully reject Him. See, brothers and sisters, we need to be careful that we're not hardening our hearts to sin. Sin has a terrifying, deceptive power to cloud your judgment and darken your understanding, which is why you must be ever so quick to deal with sin when it's, it's exposed into your life. The more you delay in addressing your sin, the more your heart will harden, 
the more your mind will darken and your actions will be grieving to the Holy Spirit. See, I have a friend of a friend. I heard a story about a friend of a friend. And he, he lived a kind of lifestyle that was very similar to Nate Larkin. And he was being unfaithful in his marriage, and, and he was um, pursuing a relationship that was outside of his marriage. And then everything came to light. His whole life fell apart. And he finally came to his senses, and he told my friend, he said, look, when I was actually doing all that stuff, I literally believed that what I was doing was right. He convinced himself that what he was doing was right. That's what sin does. That is the terrifying, deceptive power of sin if you allow sin to remain in your hearts and flourish unchecked. You need to deal with the sin that is exposed to you. Don't give sin an inch in your heart because it will deceive you, it will darken your mind, and it will lead you to a place where you cannot go. Don't harden your hearts. It's not who you are. When the Lord saved you, He took your hard heart of stone and He gave you a heart of flesh that lives and beats for His glory. And that's why we need to quit living like an unbeliever. And point number two, we need to be who we are in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 20. Paul continues on and he says, but that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. Now, that's, that's a bit of an odd statement because when you learn something, it usually has to do with information, right? You, you, you learn content. You don't learn a person. But what the Ephesian Christians learned wasn't just a bunch of data, facts, and information. Their learning was a real relational encounter with the person of Jesus Christ, and that's why he says that is. And that's why he says that is not the way you learned Christ. You see, they didn't just know things about Christ; they knew Christ. It was a very personal and intimate knowledge, a real relational encounter. You know, maybe this is just a good moment to pause and ask the question: Do you know Jesus this way? I'm not talking about simply knowing things about Jesus. I'm asking you, do you have a real relationship with Christ? Being a Christian isn't about knowing just a bunch of facts about the Bible. I've actually met some unbelievers who know the Bible better than most Christians that I know. And it's not what our faith is about. True Christianity is about putting your trust in a real Savior, about believing the very real Jesus who has died for your sins on the cross and rose again. The act of trusting and believing is true evidence of a relational encounter with Christ. So friends, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, then come and put your trust in the very real risen Christ. Don't be content with just attending church on a regular basis or knowing a few things about Him in the Bible. That will never lead to salvation. What you need is a real encounter with Jesus. What you need is a real relationship with Jesus. You don't need to know things about Jesus. You need to know Jesus. And there's a big difference between those two. The Ephesians knew Jesus personally and intimately. And in knowing Jesus, they were taught how to live in such a way that was consistent with their identity in Christ. So if you truly want to become what you are, 
then first you need to, here's point number A in your bulletin, take off the grave clothes of the old you. They were taught, look at verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. What Paul is doing here is he's using a metaphor of changing your clothes. We need to put off, take off, or get rid of our old, filthy, ragged clothing of sin and rebellion that belong to our old self. And he says, when he says to put off your old self, he's, he's talking about the attitudes, emotions, and behaviors that are characterized by sinful corruption. Paul says something very similar in Colossians. He writes in Colossians 3 verse 8, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with all of its practices. Any sinful emotion, any sinful thought, any sinful action that is tied to your old sinful life must be put off and put away for good. Now, we have to be careful here because the putting off, the action of putting off, and later the putting on language that he talks about in verse 24, there is in one sense where these things have already taken place in a believer's life when they put their faith in Jesus Christ. It has been put off. Our old self has already been put off. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. He writes, for if we have been united with him, that is Jesus, in, death like, in, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know, listen to this, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. What, what he's saying there is that our old way of life, our old self, that was all corrupted and broken through deceitful desires, has been put off and put to death in the cross of Jesus Christ. Our old self is dead and it's buried in the grave. That is no longer who we are. But here's the thing. In our experience on this side of glory, we still feel the remnants and the lingerings of our old self. It's kind of like we're being haunted and manipulated by the ghost of our former life. And our ghost will always try to lure us back into the grave so that we start digging up the coffin so that we can put on those sin-stained clothes of a dead man. That's the kind of picture that I want you to imagine when you're going back to your former way of life. It's like you're standing in the grave with a shovel, and putting on the sin-stained clothes of a dead man. And that's why Paul says that we need to continually put off what has already been ultimately put off. What Paul is commanding us to do is to actualize in our day-to-day -day life who we are in Christ. We are no longer slaves to sin, which means that we don't have to sin anymore. The problem is that sometimes we forget this, right? There are certain sins that like to linger in our life, and, and even though we may have a, a rock-solid assurance of our faith, some of those sins we just come to accept as part of being in our lives. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's bitterness. 
Maybe it's being impatient. Maybe it's laziness. Maybe it's lustful thoughts. I mean, what sin is it for you? Is there a particular sin in your life that you've just come to terms with, that you just believe will always be a part of you because it's who you are? Friend, if that's you, then you need to remember that is not who you are. Jesus did not save you to continually live in a life of impurity. On the contrary, he saved you so that you would continually put off that old dead self and live a life of righteousness and holiness. That is not who you are, and you need to remember that you are a child of God. Those filthy, sin-stained clothes belong to a person who you used to be who is now dead in the grave. It's not who you are. You need to take off the grave clothes of the old you, and you need to put on the righteous clothes of the new you. So go down to verse 24. In contrast to putting off the old self, Paul calls on the Christians to put on the righteous clothes of the new you. Verse 24, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. If the old self is a kind of life marked by attitudes, emotions, and practices of sin and corruption, then the new self is a life that is marked by attitudes, emotions, and practices of righteousness and holiness. It's the kind of life that reflects the very character of God himself. That's what it means to be created after the likeness of God. We are a new creation, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And because of Jesus Christ, we are already counted righteous. And so when Paul calls us to actively put on the new self, it is once again a call for us to become what we are, righteous children of a righteous God. You see, this is what theologians have for a long time called the process of sanctification. It's that lifelong journey of becoming holy as we are already made holy by Christ. We are put off the old self, and we are to put on the new self. Now, the big question here is, how do we actually do that? How do we actually take off the grave clothes of the old self and put on the righteous garments of the new self? How do we practically do that? Are we supposed to just try a little harder and muster up some determination to put our old sins to death or pursue righteousness? Well, not exactly. In my first story about the peasant who became a prince, although he was already a prince, he needed to take the time to learn new ways of how to think and how to live. In other words, his very mind needed rehabilitation. It needed to be constantly renewed by what he knew was true and good and right, and in the same way, our minds need to first be renewed by learning what is true and good and right. And the way we do that is by turning our attention to God's Word. Verse 22 was about putting off, and the verse 24 was about putting on, but notice that I missed a little verse there in the middle, verse 23. It says, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. So here's point C. You need to stand in front of the closet, not the grave. As Paul uses this metaphor of changing your clothes, put off and put on, 
I want to then call on you believers to stand in front of the closet, which I'm using as a picture of God's Word. You need to stay out of the grave, and you need to stand in front of the closet, open it up, and be dressed by the robes of righteousness. This is really the key that brings everything together. As we grow in our knowledge of truth from God's Word, that is the way our thinking will be renewed. Our minds will develop and conform more and more to align appropriately with our identity in Christ. You see, when Paul uses the words there, the spirit of our minds, he's really referring to what is known as the power of the mind. It's it's basically a way of talking about the source which governs and produces our thoughts and our understandings. And Paul is saying that's what needs to be constantly renewed day by day. You see, the spirit of our mind is a dynamic and ever-changing living thing. And so, if we're not constantly being renewed by what is true, then our minds will naturally default to our old ways of thinking. But when our mind is renewed by truth, that is the very source that will lead us to put off the old self and to put on the new self. So, this is really... The, the question that we come to at the very end. Friends, do you have a healthy and consistent intake of the Bible in your life? Are you regularly in God's Word renewing the spirit of your minds with truth? If that isn't there, once again, the mind tends to fall back to its old way of thinking, and before you know it, you will find yourself standing in the grave with a shovel. See, brothers and sisters, in this life, there will always be a pull from the spiritual grave where your old self is buried and dead. And what Paul is saying to you is leave the dead. Leave the dead where they're supposed to be, in the grave. You are a new creation. You've been given a new life in Christ, and you've been given a new call to live a life of righteousness and holiness a new way of life that is marked by the very character of God. So don't be like the prince who fell back to his old ways of living. Your identity is in Christ, and you belong to the King of kings. And so wear the righteous robes that he gives you. Become what you are. Let's pray. Father, we are so very thankful that we have been covered with the righteousness of Christ. But Lord, we confess that we are not all that we ought to be. And so we need your help. And you have given us help, O Lord, in your word. You've given us truth so that we would be renewed in the very spirit of our minds to put off the old self and to put on the new self. O Lord, give us much grace to be people who are disciplined in being in your word. And give us much grace, O Lord, to put to death all the sins that are in us. Help us, Lord, to be violent. Help us to put to death all that is earthly in us. And Lord, give us much grace to pursue that narrow path of righteousness, but the path that leads to everlasting life. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.